This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Welcome to a special edition of The Rabbi's Husband. This episode is not a discussion of a biblical verse, but a discussion with an original Rabbi's Husband guest, Ambassador Michael Oren, about his new book, The Night Archer. The Night Archer is a magnificent book of short stories. Michael's discussion of these stories brings us to an intimate discovery of who Michael Oren is and what it means to be Michael Oren. And it was such an interesting, compelling, and indeed moving discussion that we thought to publish it as an episode of The Rabbi's Husband. The first 50 listeners to The Rabbi's Husband who email daniel at therabbishusband.com will receive a free copy of Michael Oren's book, The Night Archer. So again, if you would like a copy of The Night Archer for free, email daniel at therabbishusband.com and the first 50 listeners will have one at their doorstep. Hi, everybody. Good evening. And um, thank you for coming. It's uh, great to see some friends on the screen, if not in person. Before we get started, it's kind of funny because we've just, for those of you who got in on time, we were listening to Ambassador Oren already opine on the situation and the complexities of peace. But from our simple perspective here on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, it seemed like an extraordinary day and one that should not go without an acknowledgement that there aren't really that many moments in Jewish history we can create historic peace between us and, and former enemies. So we thought it would be appropriate to uh, come together and say the Shekhyanu blessing um, that we show appreciation for making it to this moment, which uh, even in its complexity is a game changer and really hopefully an incredible beginning to additional moments of peace in the Middle East. So I hope you'll all join me, although I think you should all stay muted. So just uh, move your lips and say it at home, but but you'll only hear me. Baruch atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam shechianu lezman hazeh. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first, I'd just like to thank uh, the co-hosts for this uh, event, which are Jerry Silverman, Don Abramson, Mark Donick, and Ellie Elephant. Let's uh, get right to uh, questions for Michael uh, regarding his really beautiful book of fiction, The Night Archer. But before we get there, Michael, what happened to your Facebook page today? I got hacked. You got hacked. Um, I got we, hacked. I think I know who did it. Tell me. It's the gefilte fish industry. <laughs> the the evidence is this is uh, what you said in your story, Afi Komen. Right. You said passed out is more like it. From the shit shaped piece of fish I can't bear to look at, <laughs> much less eat, and the matzah I can't swallow. Right. Well, welcome to welcome to the memories of a you know a suburban uh, assimilated Jewish seder at age 12, 13 years old. That's what it looked like. All right. That was a great story, Afi Komen. So tell us about, about Afi Komen. What inspired it? What happens? I mean, all these short stories are genuinely short, and we're going to get into your craft as a short story writer. But tell us about right. this. This is the most uh, bizarre. I mean, I do, I'm completing a book on Pesach, but this is the most bizarre thing ever written about the Pesach holiday. But it's just beautiful, evocative, and brings out the complexities of the American Jewish experience in about 300, 400 words. Well, first of all, thank you, uh, you know, Eric and Mark, all the co-hosts 
uh, everywhere. Thank you for coming out tonight. You know, it is a, a very auspicious day for us, a very happy day. Um, as I was telling earlier, those of you who may have come to the, it, if, yeah, if you joined up earlier, you've heard me say that this is a total game changer for our region. And yes, I mean, if someone would have asked, told me 41 years ago when I moved to this country with a backpack on my back, that someday we'd be sitting and having open relations with these with the city, these countries in the Gulf that our planes would be flying over Saudi Arabia, I'd say, no, that's, you know, that that would be relegated to messianic times. That couldn't perhaps happen in my lifetime. And here we are. It's happening right now. And we should all be profoundly, profoundly aware of it and uh, and simply grateful for this moment to be alive at this moment in Jewish history. It's very special. Um, having said that, and Afi Komen, uh, generally speaking, for those who haven't read this book, it, it's over 50 short stories very short stories, most of them. Um, Afi Komen is actually one of the longest stories. I think it, it weighs in about three or four pages. And they reflect my experience in life. Uh, many collections of short stories are, are very similar. They'll, they'll, you know, some of my favorite short story writers, whether it's Tim O'Brien or, or Elizabeth Strout, will write about one thing. They'll write about uh, a war in Vietnam. They'll write about a small uh, town, life in a small town in Maine uh, with working class white people. I decided to write 51 stories that are completely different. Everyone, there's mystery stories and murder stories and love stories and, and science fiction stories, and a lot of history stories, and of course, Jewish stories. And I think I want to talk later about why this is a Jewish book uh, and why it's been published under a Jewish imprint. But the story of Komen obviously comes from my background. It comes from uh, the type of satyrs we had growing up. I grew up in a highly assimilated uh, home. We didn't keep kosher. Uh, we certainly didn't keep Shabbat. I don't think anybody, not only did anybody ever, never, nobody in my family had ever read a page of Talmud. Nobody in my family could tell you what the Talmud was. And so every year we had to go through this ceremony of the, of the, of the Seder, reading a Haggadah that we, we didn't understand. Um, and if you were 13 years old, what you wanted to do was, you know, sort of play under the table, especially if you had older cousins uh, who wore miniskirts, you wanted to play under the table. <laughs> and you drank a lot of wine until you basically passed out. And everyone waited, waited, waited for the search for the Afikoma. He works for the Afikoma because it, first there's a search, and then at the end of it, there's money, right? Someone's got to redeem it. And uh, in my household, it's funny because, you know, Mark knows my parents well. And uh, we my mother is, my mother's a very, very, they're both very, very special people. My father and my mother, 95 and 92 years old. By the way, recently married 72 years, believe it or not, living in the same house I grew up in. So this, this. this and your father was a hero in the Battle of the Bulge. My father was a hero in World War II. If you want to hear his stories, please call. I'll be happy to tell you his stories. And there's a lot of World War II stories in this collection too. And you know where they come from. My mother had this, I don't know, a tendency to hide the Afikoman so well that we couldn't find it. And in subsequent years, we would find the Afikoman from two, three, four years before. Okay. Mom, there's the Afikoman from, you know, 1971. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that makes its way into this story, too. So the story takes place around a, a Seder table circa 1973-74. Conversation around the table is about Kissinger and Watergate. And it's, a, it's told from the perspective of a 13-year-old Jewish kid, a frustrated, bored, horny uh, Jewish kid who is not particularly socially successful in school. And he's got a girl he likes, Laurie Finkelstein, who won't give him the time of day. And he waits for the office. Is Laurie a real girl in your life or was she? Laurie, Laurie was every girl in my life. And the, my entire life was, was, was populated with Laurie Finkelsteins. And... Um, <laughs> The young man goes off and looks for this Aki Komen. And what he finds is not only shocking, it's transformative. 
and is a source of, you, you can, though it doesn't say so in the book, you understand that it's going to change his entire life. Wow. Um, was Uncle Harold a real character in your life? Um, there were many Uncle Harolds. <laughs> it, obviously, the father is not my father because you know my father, right? Right. Uh, no, the father, father was a not... the father was a furniture salesman. Your your and and your father was a hot girl executive. Hot executive. My father was a tough guy. This guy's not a tough guy. Um, right. But you know, it it comes out of that experience. It, it's reaching back and and harnessing and and um and 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 dredging your past uh, or or experiences that make for a story. But every story is not just about experience. I want to be able to say something in each story that is essential about, about the human condition, uh, about questions that we deal with all the time. Uh, and in this story, Afikon, we're dealing with the question of how do we deal with, with secrets? How do we deal with guilt? And ultimately, it asks the question, is redemption possible? So there's a way, it, it's a funny story, but there are very weighty questions going on in it. So when you, when you start a story, do you start with a philosophy that you want to impart and do it through story? Or do you start with a story that leads to a philosophy? And the answer is, and the answer is yes. Um, the process is almost always the same. I don't go to the story. The story comes to me. Hmm. I'll be washing the dishes or, you know, I, you know, I row a lot in the morning. I, I have a skull and, and all of a sudden there'll be a story. It wasn't there a second ago and now it's there. And my first reaction is always the same. My first reaction is, nah, I can't possibly. That's too, hmm. that's too out there. I'm sure that happened with the Afi Coleman story. It came to me, no, that can't be. And the image I have in my mind is of building a, a, a suspension bridge. Think of the Vero Zanonaris bridge. So you, you build a bridge, you, you lay a foundation on one side, you lay a foundation on the other side, and you got to figure out how this bridge is going to meet in the middle, okay, over, over the narrows. And that's always the big challenge. I know how the story begins. I know how the story ends, but I don't know how it meets in the middle. And it's okay. how, how to make the, the two ends of the suspension bridge meet and how to make it, you know, hold on. And then you sit down opposite that the most terrifying thing on earth outside of like warfare is an empty computer page and you start to write and you have to have a lot of faith. Um, you have a faith in, in news, you have a faith in the inspiration that it's going to reveal itself to you. And every single story, Mark, Erica and company is, um, is a process of, of revelation for me. And all of a sudden, at some point in the story, I'll understand, ah, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. Will, will you know the middle before you start writing or will it come to you and will it reveal itself during the process itself? So you know the beginning, you know the end. When do you figure out the middle? During the course of the writing. I'll give, just give you another example. You know, some of, the, some of these yeah. writings, another story, all these stories, again, come from experience. Um, during my, my last political position, when I was deputy in the prime minister's office, I undertook a number of diplomatic commissions abroad. And one of them brought me to Lithuania. And Lithuania is a close ally of the state of Israel. But once upon a time, it was one of the, you know, the arch enemies of the Jewish people. Lithuanians started massacring Jews even before the Nazis arrived. The only case in the Holocaust like that. And my mother's family is from Lithuania, from a small village about 70 kilometers outside of Vilnius. And I'm sitting with the foreign minister of Lithuania, a lovely man, loves Israel. And we're chatting back and forth. I said, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm half Lithuanian. And he says, really, where are you from? And I tell him where I'm from. He says, we're going to take you there tomorrow. I'm going to have my car take you out there. So I get into the foreign minister's car the next morning, and we drive to a, a town known in Lithuania as Anishkaya. In Yiddish, it was Anishk. And my, my grandmother told me a number of stories about this town, you know, the, the street they lived on, how during the pogroms they would hide in the basement. And I go to this town, and there's a, there's a street there called Synagogue Street. The synagogue is there. 
the houses are there with the, with the shelters and the basements. And I was taken to the woods where the entire town was taken out on, on a one, on, in one afternoon and shot and killed by Lithuanians, single survivor in the entire town. My grandmother got out before them. I came away from this experience not knowing, have any idea what I was going to write about it, but I knew that I had to write something about it, that it was just too overwhelming. And I sat down at the computer and what came out surprisingly was a story of an 11-year-old girl hiding in a birch forest. And what the story evolved into over the course of writing, and I had no idea it was going this direction, turned out to be a triptych. Now, there, if you've read the book, there are several triptychs. These are the three stories put together that make a whole. And the connection between them is not always so obvious. But in this particular triptych, um, it's a story of a family through several generations. And it's it's not chronological. It begins with the, with the girl, but then it goes back to uh, to her grandfather. And then it goes forward to her son, who's an Israeli politician. Um, I draw on that experience. And the story is called Anist. And when I finished the story, I finally understood what the experience of visiting that village had meant for me. Because at the time, I couldn't, I couldn't put words into it. It took me another couple of weeks of writing a story to understand what I had gone through. So uh, Graham Greene wrote about, uh, he was a great, of course, a great novelist. And he said that his yeah. methodology was, he said, I would write 800 words every morning before 8 a.m. When 8 a.m. hit, 800 words hit, I was done. I don't care, mid-sentence done, 800 words before 8 a.m. And then he said, I'd spend the rest of the day observing. And you can actually get a lot of words done in a year if you have that discipline. Did you have a discipline like that? Yes, I do. So I get up, these are the golden, golden hours of the morning, preferably before the sun comes up. And everything's very quiet and, 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 and dusty. And I think in 5 a.m., 5.30? Yeah, something like that. That's the clock is good enough. And, and then um, okay. I write until I know exactly when I cannot write another word. And I never force it beyond that. Is that a time limitation or a no, feeling? Totally How long is it typically? It can, it can run anywhere from an hour and a half to two and a half hours. What does it feel like? The feeling of stop? It's, 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 it's a feeling of being spent. And uh, not to attach too much, you know, sexual innuendo in it, innuendo to it, but it is actually a feeling of being spent, and it's a delightful feeling. Interesting. And uh, sometimes it's frustrating because I, I want to write more, but I know I shouldn't write more. And anything I write more, I'm just going to rip up the next day anyway. And what's interesting about it for me, Mark, is that I afterwards I have no memory of it. I have no memory of writing any of these stories. What do you mean? Because it, it, it's a spiritual experience and it's a meditative experience. I, I just, I, I don't recall writing any of them. So I, I just mentioned the Oppie Coleman story. You don't remember writing that? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I remember I remember the thoughts that went into it. Okay, but I don't actually remember the process of sitting down and writing this. How do you edit? So, so, so you're done in an hour and a half or two yeah. hours. Is it good to go at that point? Or do you need to edit it subsequently, either in the moment or years later? Uh, and the answer is that, yes. Yeah. So what I do is I come in the next morning and I go back and look at what I wrote the previous day. And I tweak it. Um, very rarely, you know, there are you know, deep substantive changes. And then I go to the most terrifying stage of all. There's a terrifying stage here. You want to know what that stage is? Yeah, I what give is the it? story to Leslie. So the, the, what kind <laughs> of editor is Leslie? Leslie is the best editor on the planet. And um, critical? Super. Lovingly critical. But, but, but I want to say ruthlessly because it makes her sound ruthless, but she, she is just, she's unstintingly honest. And she has. She has thrown some stories out. She's like, you know, this doesn't work. And so out of, out of, out of, how, out of, out of uh, 100 stories you do, how many will either you or she throw out? Anywhere from five to 10. So you keep 
Yeah, about 90 90, 90%. Yeah, yeah. But also, she'll look at a word. She'll say, you know, say, this word doesn't work. You know, be spare. Their line is to be spare. There's a reason why this book is, is dedicated to her. She chose the title. And uh, there's just a reason. Great title, great cover. And she, she also designed the cover. <laughs> she designed the cover. So um, it's, it's, it, that, that is terrifying to me. I have to pass that. Back. And then also, then after that, you go through the usual process. You go to your editor. The editor will do editing. And it was very good editing on this book. Do you write a story every day? Oh, I wish I could. It, I, I, How many times a week? It, it depends whether the story's there or not. So I don't say to myself, oh, I'm going to write three four days this week. It, it depends on the story's there. It, it, Do you ever go a month without one? Uh, I have. It's, it's, it, it's excruciating. Is that the longest you've gone without one? I don't know if I've gone a month since I started writing this book. It was uh, about four or five years. I don't know if I've gone a month. probably have. Um, one of my favorite stories in this book um, It's not an easy story. It's toward the beginning. It's called Metaxas. Last summer, Leslie and I took a trip. We took a trip uh, along the Freedom Trail in in southern United States. We went to Selma, Alabama. We went to Montgomery. We went to Atlanta. Never been to this part of America. And this story hit me mid-trip. Just hit me. Where? How? I don't know. It's a story set on the American frontier in 1841 at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in winter. At a in a in an American Army fort, right? It's sort of a a pistolatory, pistolological story, which told through letters, it's dispatches uh, written by the commander of this outpost to his commanding officer. And it's a story about monsters. It's a monster story and a terrifying story. Let's say, now why would I, you know, sitting having dinner in Charleston or or in Savannah? Why would this story hit me there? I have no sounds like idea. a dream sequence. I have no idea. But while we're driving, or while she's driving, I'm on my cell phone and I'm looking up army, I'm looking up army dispatches from the 1840s because I want to get the language just right. And if you look at that story, even the way the, the letters are structured is precisely the structure of U.S. Army dispatches from 1840. And I want to learn about Indian lore, about Native American law, and about how they viewed monsters in the mountains and even the name taxes is a play on the indian word for you know for the abominable snowman it's all genuine it's all genuine now my reader doesn't know that it's genuine but there i'm calling on my my resources as a historian and i have an historian's tool i know how to access the u.s army archives and and look at these dispatches but it was the strangest thing to be traveling you know across tennessee and you know, stopping to, to sit, sit Jack Daniels at the distillery. All the time I'm writing the story about Metaxas that, that set, you know, 160 years ago. How has writing this book changed you? First of all, it's the realization of a dream. I mean, I, I've been writing since, writing creatively since I was 12, 13 years old. And it, it's been a kind of a brutal process. Anybody gets into writing, you got to know, you got to be prepared to be rejected and rejected and rejected. It was very difficult to get people to read this story because this collection because uh, short stories are sort of infamously not sellable. <laughs> so you know it's not it doesn't have a big market value. We may change that, but you have to be prepared for that. And so, after many years of not being able to publish, because in Israel the government you can't publish. So I was ambassador, I couldn't publish. And I was in government, I couldn't publish. I was able to actually regain a voice. What's in this book is, is, is me, and it's the essential part of me. And the people who read it will be, I will be inviting into my soul. I can't put it any, any less sentimentally than that. Who's the most welcome. meaningful character to you? 
you'd be surprised. I mean, obviously, there's a story called Ruin, which is the opening story. It's about a ghost named Ruin. And when I was uh, four years old, I had an imaginary friend named Ruin, probably because my mother was always saying, who ruined this? Who ruined this? So it was obviously me. I, I, my name was Ruin. So that's a very deep story. There's a story called The 30-Year Rule. It's also a complex story. And the, the title of the story is A Double Entendre. Because in the United States and Great Britain and Israel, all three democracies observe what's called the 30-year rule. The 30-year rule means after 30 years, our governments will declassify a formally classified secret document. If you're a historian, you want to go to the archives after 30 years, be the first one to read these documents. And that's what I did with my book uh, on the Six-Day War. I was the first. I, I started that book in 1998 when the documents from 67 were just being declassified. And I was the first one to read on the 30-year rule. But in the story, the 30-year rule is also a 30-year British rule over an imaginary island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, which I call Darsha. And it, it's a comedy, but it's a story about sort of a, an overweight, gay British, journal, British diplomat who experiences trauma in this island. And after 30 years, he goes back to the British archives to read the diplomatic uh, correspondence that describe the crisis on this island. And he is looking at these documents and understanding that documents lie, that documents don't tell the truth. And the theme of the story is about the truth. What does truth mean? But it's strange that, that this character uh, named Crosswaith, who is you know, portly, he's moved to San Francisco, he owns a, a kitchen uh, supply store, the character to whom I feel intensely close, and I can't even tell you why. How is the craft of writing fiction different than writing history? I want to say totally different. Uh, first of all, I can, I can write for those two or two and a half hours fiction in the morning, then turn around and write nonfiction without having interfered at all because it comes from a completely different part of your brain. You know, I wrote this morning and I turned around and wrote an op-ed for CNN today. You'll get it on CNN now about the, about the peace treaties. No interference whatsoever. The same, I wrote, you may remember, I wrote a novel years ago called Reunion. Right. I wrote that novel at the same time that I was writing Six Days of War. So it's a different, and, uh, it's a different experience, but how is it different? Well, you know, I would say that the, the history comes from here up and the, and the fiction goes down, but, but I think I would be, it would be misleading to say it's totally different because history writing, when it's at its best, and this is always the compliment, which I love the most, it reads like a novel and you want to capture the drama, drama in history. And you got to work hard not to capture the drama in the six day war book, but a book like Power, Faith and Fantasy about 200 years of American involvement in the Middle East, you have to always seek out the drama. And one of the, I always say one of the great, the first task of an historian is, is decision-making. We don't think about that, but there are always a hundred facts and only one can make them in the book. And I want to choose the fact which, which illuminates everything else, but also keeps my reader fascinated. And that's very much in a novelist's approach. How am I keeping my reader interested? And so you're thinking about um, your reader as your customer. I, I'm all about the reader. <laughs> I really am. Not every writer is, by the way. I know many writers who aren't about the reader. They, they, they'll say, oh, my reader's just going to have to slog through this. I'm sorry. This is important to me. Uh, I'm not like that. The reader always gets the veto here. I mean, the worst thing that Leslie ever says about a story is that it's boring. <laughs> it's not interesting. Um, and, uh, and then you see how in these stories, I often have recourse to historian tools. I'll give you another example. There's a story there called Nuevo Mondo, which again is, is, is about entries from a diary of a young Spanish conquistador in the year 1538. And he's traveling to the New World. 
and uh, he's going to bring civilization and Christianity to the savages. To write the story, I had to know a lot about the conquistadors. I had to know a lot about, about exploration in the 16th century. I had to know about the, 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 sort of the, 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 the frame of mind, the worldview uh, of conquistadors. Now, that's not what the story is about. The story is a disquisition on the nature of civilization and what we mean by civilization. And it grew out of a conversation I had with my son, Noam, where he took me to task for assuming that civilization was, was synonymous with technological uh, advance when it isn't. I mean, he was right. And that's what the story's about. But I had recourse to all those tools as a historian. And there are other stories like this, another story called uh, Slave to Power about a slave in the medieval Ottoman Empire, an African slave who's a sultan, because in Islamic civilization, slaves were bred and educated to rule. It's a complete flip on the Western notion of slavery. So the sultans were slaves. The, the foreign ministers were slaves. The generals were slaves to the state. Go figure that one out. So in, let's say, 15, 20 years, when your grandchildren pick up the night archer, what do you want them to think? Wow, what was with that guy? <laughs> what was with that guy? Uh, it won't be was. You'll be right there. I'm right there. Let's see. We'll see. Now, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm in the middle of my next collection. And, um, and I, every once in a while, I want to try my hand in science fiction. And so there's ones, there, 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 there are actually several science fiction stories in this collection that take different takes on the, on the past, on, on the future, and how, it, how it's going to play out. But in my next collection, I went really deep into a science fiction mode. And um, it's immensely challenging. Because it involves prophecy. And in the story which I wrote in this collection is not, you know, for the next collection, it, it's about what human beings are going to be like 200 years from now and what part of them remains human, if at all. So you love America and that comes through so clearly in the book and, and in your life. How did it feel to give up your American citizenship? <laughs> it hurts. It hurts. Uh, no, was there a moment I, when I, you had I, to... I, cr- I cried. Mm-hmm. You did? Oh, sure. Why'd you cry? Because listen, I, I, I love America. I love America. Uh, not that I don't have my criticism of America. Not I, I'm, right now, I, I look at what's going on in America and it's heartbreaking for me. But I, 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 I believe that America is for humanity, you know, a last best hope. And was it for all of its flaws? I was aware of all these flaws. It was it, the noblest experiment, you know, that modernity has produced. And I also saw that, that, uh, that fighting for Israel was a way of fighting for the same ideals that America stood for. So I, I saw no contradiction between them. And so it was very painful for me. I mean, most of these stories are set in America. They're not expressly set in America. But there are some Israeli stories, including one which is one of my favorites about, uh, that asks the question, what is the nature of heroism? And what is the nature of heroism? Well, maybe not what you see. There's a story called uh, the, the Widow's Hero. I'm sorry, it's The Hero's Widow. And it's about, it's based on somebody I knew, a diplomat, whose husband had been killed in the Yom Kippur War, was a hero in that war, and married somebody else and had a very successful living marriage. But I asked myself, what is it like to be that husband, the husband of the hero's widow? And uh, the story's about wow. that. And how this Did you protagonist, ask no, I didn't, how this protagonist proves himself to be a hero. What kind of heroism? It's not the heroism of you know standing up to bullets. And it even asks the question whether the whether the the first husband who died in battle was really a hero or was he was something else. Um, so it's just it really is a, is a disquisition on, on on heroism. 
So um, now you're an Israeli um, short story writer, and this is a question in the chat from Erica uh, Dreyfus. You've um, you've written about the, uh, the the boycott, about aiming to fight boycotts with the help of poets and writers. What is the role that poets and writers, Israeli poets and writers, can play or are playing in presenting Israel's story? Well, there's two roles. Uh, it's a great question. No one's ever asked me that question. There's two roles. Um, one is showing to the world that you can be a, a creative person, an artist. And love, Zion, and love Zionism and love the state of Israel. And that's not to be taken for granted today, right? Because how many people are there are out there? Like increasingly, particularly in, in America and in, in progressive circles, Zionism is seen as, as, as irreconcilable with art, with, with, with thinking, with feelings, with passion. And the other point, I'll just tell you a brief story. Um, a couple of years ago, Prime Minister Netanyahu called me uh, to his home in, in Kasaria and said, listen, what can we do about this BDS thing? And a great question. And I, I said to him, you know, you know, the other side has a very simple narrative. It's, it's five words. It's, it's, it's occupation and racism and oppression and colonialism, you know, and we don't have those five words. If you want to be able to say what our narrative is, you've got to go into a whole rigmarole that starts with, you know, the exodus for Egypt and comes through the Holocaust and desired to turn to Zion. Then oh, how we offered peace and our hand was turned right. It, it, you're, you're, you're 45 minutes and you haven't got through the, the Israeli Jewish uh, narrative. And I said, we have to get it down to five lines. So he said, well, go do it. And so I took this assignment. And who do you go to? The obvious person you go to first, you go to the, uh, to the Madison Avenue people. And I went to the best of Madison Avenue. And you know what they came back with? It came back with cherry tomatoes and, you know, a lot of fun on Israeli beaches. And that's, that didn't wash. And then I decided, I, make it, I made a change. I decided to go to the poets. And the poets came back with something completely different. They didn't mention the Holocaust. They definitely did not mention the cherry tomatoes, the beaches. And it, stayed, it's, it started off with a line, you know, Israel is home. Israel is family. Israel is warmth. Israel is love. You know, Israel is caring and, and explaining what we meant. And the whole thing was maybe eight lines. I wanted to get it down to five. But I, I would challenge anybody who loves this country to listen to that narrative and not be deeply moved by it. Beautiful. Absolutely. Um, a, um, so a question from Toby. Uh, you spoke of, of Vilna, uh, Lithuania, and how meaningful that visit was to you. What's going on with the fight about the Jewish cemetery? If you could talk about that in the context of Jewish memory. Well, okay. I mean, that's contemporary issues here. Let me broaden that question because it's one that I dealt with pretty extensively when I was in government uh, as, as you know, right-wing governments arose in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe. And these governments were looking for a close relationship with us. We had an interest in fostering those relationships because it broke the EU unanimity on Israel and they have to have unanimous votes on it. So it was important, but many of these, these movements and governments had roots that went back to fascism and the 30s, some back to Nazism uh, in the 30s and the 40s. And the question arose, what degree uh, should we overlook those roots? And I was strongly of the opinion that Israel should not sell its birthright, that yes, we have a strategic and diplomatic interest in, in, in strengthening this relationship. We should not you know, look the other way. And that this was a, a moral imperative for the Jewish state, but it was also a strategic interest for the Jewish state, because when we go to war, and we are facing enemies like Hezbollah, Iran, and Hamas, who don't want to defeat us. They want to destroy us. These are genocidal movements. The fact that we are a people who has faced genocide, have survived genocide, 
gives us a certain amount of leeway and justification on the battlefield and that we use and we are justified using. And if we sell that birthright, our legacy, our, our remembrance of the Holocaust for sort of immediate or short-term diplomatic or strategic gain, we'll be sacrificing. And I, I strongly believe that. And I stood that true. Even here, our relationship with Lithuania, what a great relationship with Lithuania. Terrific people. Should we forget the Lithuanian role in the Holocaust? Should we look the other way? Absolutely, absolutely not. How do you balance the two? You just, you say to them, okay, we love you. <laughs> but if, like, for example, there's an issue about, uh, not just about, about, about creating a Holocaust museum, and a, a museum for Jewish history in Lithuania. And it's come against a lot of opposition within Lithuania. And there's a movement within Lithuania to lionize former Lithuanian nationalists who are anti-Soviet, but they just also happen to be anti-Semitic uh, pro-Nazi. No, we, we, we do not. We do not allow that. We do not allow that to pass without very strong comment. Question from Steve Jenks from Eagle's Wings. How would you compare and contrast the roles of storyteller and diplomat? And did well, your storytelling <laughs> ability help you as a diplomat? No question about it. No question. That's a very good question. Because if you read another book I wrote called Ally, you know that I was telling stories all the time. Telling the story that everything was okay in a relationship with the United States. Because that was my job. And, and yes, you want to be able to get in front of an audience and, and tell a story. Because people, people, people resonate stories. You know, you can talk about the startup nation and how many different, you know, startups in Israel are dealing with autonomous driving and how many are, are making water out of air. But at the end of the day, you want to touch people. And particularly today where facts have become so immaterial and what's important is not facts, but feelings, which all of us have been involved in relationships know that when a, when a fact meets a feeling, the feeling is always going to win, right? And stories are, are, what, are what touches people in their heart. So the diplomat has to tell stories. An effective diplomat, they would have to. I would love to talk about, can I, can I um, introduce a, a different subject myself? I want to talk sure. about the Jewish nature of this book. Yes, because uh, it had been the first book uh, published under a Jewish imprint called Wicked Son, which I love. And our, our good friend Adam Bello is the editor of this and has done a great job. Great editor. Um, great editor. Why is this book a Jewish book? I mean, there are stories that are obviously Jewish stories, like Asif Coleman, like Anisht. Life, one of the opening stories, Liberation, which is about Holocaust survivors, a number of Holocaust uh, stories. And some of the characters are obviously Jewish, though they may not be stated as Jewish. And in the introduction of, of the book, I make the case that writing in general is very Jewish, but short stories are singularly Jewish. And let me explain briefly. First of all, writing is freedom. I know there are many people in the United States right now who want to take away that freedom from writers and say you can only write about you know, people who have the same color skin, the same sexuality, the same politics of you. But, you know, writing is freedom. It's, 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 the, it's as precise what imagination is. It's, a, it's the ability to get out of who you are and be somebody completely different at a different time, a different place. Writing's about empathy. There's freedom. And freedom is, is a hallowed Jewish concept. We have many words in Hebrew for freedom. Uh, many more than, than English, by the way. But Jewish freedom is a very particular kind of freedom. It's not the freedom you know, that we knew in the 1960s, because I'm of that age, uh, where anything goes. There's no freedom comes in Judaism with law. And only tr the only true freedom is freedom, freedom that comes with limitations. And that's the message. You, you can get out of slavery in Egypt, but you're going to end up in Sinai. And, uh, and you're going to get the law. And that's true freedom. And we are the only people on earth who have a holiday that celebrates freedom. We celebrate the freedom, the, the holiday of freedom by having extra restrictions put on us. Think about this. So it, it's, the, it's the paradox of Jewish freedom. Paradox. By the way, which is 
deeply influenced the founding fathers of the United States. That it's hardwired into the U.S. Constitution. Why is a short story a Jewish genre? Okay, so this is, you know, we, we don't have a great architectural legacy, okay? The stuff we dig up in this country is derivative at best, okay? There's no Jewish architecture, even from the Second Temple period. We don't know a lot about the music that was played by our forefathers and mothers. Uh, we know that the harp had either eight strings or ten strings, but we don't know what the song sounded like. But we have literature, and we are, you know, we are suffused shoes with, with Jewish literature. And the literature of the Tanakh, of the Bible, is short stories. It's one short story after another. And they have form, and they have meter, and they are our freedom, but freedom that comes with restrictions. And that's precisely what short stories are. So in these stories, I can be anybody. I can do it. I can be anywhere I want at any time, but, but, I have to say in three pages what a novelist says in 300. Think about it. I have to develop a character. You have to finish those three pages. You've got to know my characters. You've got to know what they sound like. You have to develop an idea. An idea well, it's so interesting. You know, uh, we're coming up on Yom Kippur and the greatest, perhaps piece of writing, certainly the story, word for word ever written, it was bad out Jonah. Less in, as words. we know. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you don't know about that article in 2007 or something, but it's, yeah. it's more, it's fewer words than a newspaper column. And yet it is the, the great Jewish story of truth, mercy, and repentance. And, and it's a short story. It's a, pri- it's a primer for leadership also. Among other things. Sure. Uh, it's a primer for leadership. And, you have to uh, it's extraordinary. It's like, a, it's, it, I think it's the second shortest book in the Bible. It's, it's uh, extraordinary what you have in that very, very short, very short piece. Here's an example. There's, there's, there's a Jewish short story that has everything in it. It has pathos. It has, it has danger. It has mystery. It has irony. Oh, boy, it, it has have irony. Oh, yeah. And... What a, what a fantastic work of short fiction it is. So I think that, that fiction generally is Jewish, and I think the choice fiction is very Jewish. Well, Michael, first, thank you for such a fascinating, as always with you, but fascinating conversation and uh, for letting us really not only get into your writing, but get into your soul and, right and, and well, get, really get into well. what it means to be Michael Oren and, and evolving Michael Oren as we're all evolving, mm-hmm. but to let us see uh, um, a man in action. So thank you. and and. Uh, so everyone on the call will get the book as long as you gave wow. Daniel Thank you. Uh, your address, which I think most people did. But if you didn't, uh, email me or Daniel Jadel uh, and you'll get the book. Please encourage uh, all your friends, colleagues, contacts to buy The Night Archer, available obviously on Amazon and other places. But I guess these days, Amazon. and Yeah, and send in Amazon reviews. People actually read those reviews. And I know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's very good to get to reviews. Wait, we, we, uh, we just got a question from Mark Wilde. So I... Uh, um, uh, Mark's thoughts are always so interesting, so we're just going to not end with the previous, but with this. Right. Mark says, I love the marriage and freedom. I love the marriage of freedom and restrictions that you describe. How would you inspire more love for Israel among young, young people as you so love Israel? Well, let, let's, let's take that, that notion that freedom is only truly free if it comes with restrictions. That, that basically defines the state of Israel, defines sovereignty. Okay, so we have freedom in this country, and we live here as free Jews, but that freedom comes with myriad restrictions, uh, whether it be paying taxes or going into lockdown this week, which is a hell of a restriction, or serving in the army, but it also comes with responsibility, and I think that is, that is the message of Sinai, that it, you're going to be free, but you, it, being free incurs responsibility. It's exactly the opposite of that notion of freedom of the 1960s, where you had no responsibility. 
Uh, Jewish freedom is all about responsibility, and it, it includes the, the response of taking responsibility for when we screw up. Uh, and we screw up, you know, in the world times every day. We screwed up on Corona. We screwed up in, in, in our relations with, 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 with Palestinians, with, with so many different issues. We, we screw up. What we have to do as Jews, especially as young Jews, is to take a step back and say, wow, we have the inestimable, the ineffable privilege to be alive at a time in Jewish history where Jews have the ability to screw up in a sovereign, free environment. Like, think about that. I, 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 I have a, I have a, um, I don't know, I don't know, go to on here. You guys are on the phone for a long time, but I have an imaginary conversation all the time with my great great grandfather in the Schnedel. And I go to, I go to my grandfather. I said, guess what? You know, in my lifetime, there's going to be a Jewish state. That Jewish state's going to have an army that's twice as big as the French, British armies combined. That's actually more. We're going to have five of the, the world's leading universities. We're going to have a, a thriving economy. We're going to be a democracy. And I go through all the things that Israel is. And he is, just, my grandfather doesn't have words. What, what is this? This, this? this is a, but here then I give him the rub. I said, listen, there's some problems here. There, you know, there was another people living there, the Palestinians, you know, they don't accept us. We've tried to make peace with them a couple of times, but you know, we haven't been perfect with them. But there are some Jews now who say that maybe we shouldn't have this state because of this problem with this, these other people, the Palestinians. And my great-grandfather looks at me like I'm completely insane, that there would be Jews who would give up on this ineffable miracle because of, okay, a problem. It's a serious problem, but it's a problem. And it's seen it in that context of Jewish history, how our position is today in Jew, as Jews, whether in Israel or in the United States. What would our ancestors have said if they could have seen our reality today? They would have thought, the Messiah is coming. And what do we do? We complain. <laughs> it's about gratitude. And that's what a miracle inspires. When we recognize, right. we recognize Israel as a miracle, when we recognize anything as a miracle, gratitude is what comes out. Well, I, I, I'm very grateful for these stories. I'm grateful for whatever enables me to have yeah, these right. stories. I'm grateful for tonight, by the way, for you being with me tonight, for Mark and Erica who read these stories, you're in the, you're in the acknowledgments, uh, and for all the people who, who helped me make this happen. Adam, if you're listening, Leslie, who's asleep, but uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's 2 a.m. there. It is 2 a.m. here. Uh, yeah, you know, Israelis don't sleep. You know, it's, and, uh, well, Michael, thank you so thank much you. for such a, a beautiful and fascinating uh, discussion. And uh, it's the, the Night Archer, again, and um, available on Amazon. Please socialize it as widely as possible. And let's all use our platforms to tell people about the Night Archer. Thank you, everybody. Good night thank from you. Jaffa. Okay. Good night. And Shana Tova. Not to everybody. Have a pleasant, Shana beautiful, Tova. sweet, and healthy New Year. Okay. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. So again, if you would like a copy of the Night Archer for free, email daniel at therabbishusband.com. And the first 50 listeners will have one at the doorstep. You are-